This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, it's our third episode on the Lincoln assassination. To the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and with me is Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, everybody, how's it going? And Rail Splitter Nick. What up? So we are. Uh, those of you who listened last week, we are continuing our coverage of the Lincoln assassination. Uh, we have our special guest who blogs at boothybarn.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at boothybarn. Dave Taylor. Dave, how are you doing? Wonderful. I'm happy to be back with you again. All right. So we uh, we kind of didn't make a secret about it at the end of last episode that we are recording back-to-back episodes tonight. So I think it is important for us to take a minute and recognize that it is now 10.09 in Illinois, which means our, our uh, East Coast contributors, Mary and Dave, it is 11 o'clock, and Mary has a heck of a cold. So <laughs> I just wanted to at least acknowledge the fact that our guest... And Rail Splitter Mary are making the sacrifice for Rail Splitter Nation this week to get you that third assassination episode uh, because uh, we've heard good feedback about the first one and hopefully by now the, the second one as well. Uh, well the but feedback for the second one's been outstanding. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really we have not yet posted it as of this recording. I'm actually um, very confident that the feedback is good right now. I think so. This is where Nick pretends to predict the future or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, I thank you, East Coasters and. Mary with a cold for uh, for being a trooper and uh, taking one for Rail Splinter Nation because, uh, you know. And for Kira sitting there quietly as we record at the house. Right. We are at Nick's house. Nick and I are recording at Nick's house, and Nick's significant other is patiently sitting on the couch. We don't let her talk when we record. He That's says we. Like, <laughs> this is. Jeremy does not let her talk when he comes <laughs> over. She it's is she really is an mean, absolutely really delightful rude. person. She is a. a for putting up with you, sir. She is a wonderful Mary, person. I think you and I need to take over. So, uh, <laughs> next week we'll be talking about the assassination of Real Splitter Nick. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Dang, man, that's cold. That's very cold. <laughs> so, um, we did want to thank everyone who sent in questions. We are going to get to them in this episode. I apologize for kind of pulling a fast one on you, those of you that submitted questions and expected them to be answered last week. Uh, and we pushed it over to this week, but there was just such, we just got got going on so many good uh, conversations about John Wilkes Booth, about the conspirators, about the assassination, uh, its aftermath, uh, what led up to it, um, that we just kind of wanted to make sure that we gave ample time to your questions as well. Uh, and we also um, want to keep to an hour-long show so that you can plan accordingly with your commutes and whenever else you listen, uh, so we're not uh, dropping a huge episode although i do need to mention uh that dave uh part of his side job is conducting a 12-hour tour uh of the lincoln assassination related uh, area so he could do this he could he could put a 12-hour episode on the assassination out there um 
but you know our, our phones only have so much storage so <laughs> um so let's go ahead and jump right in uh we a couple things real quick before we get to listener submitted questions uh is uh we didn't really talk about booth's uh demise how he ended up so we did want to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a glimpse of that um, and then we'll hopefully get to jump into some listener submitted questions. So Dave, why don't you talk to us a little bit about, um, I, perhaps the Boothy Barn. I don't know if that's what you named uh, your, your site after or not, but, uh, talk to us you a little know, bit about that. I, I started my site and just gave it a silly name. Cause I thought no one's ever going to read it anyway. It's for more for myself and now I can't change it. So, you know, at least you guys got rail splitter pod, great name. It'll last three years. It's great. Um, but yeah, uh, the the good news in the whole Lincoln assassination story is that Booth kind of gets what's coming to him. Um, and so he is on the run for 12 days. And so he escapes uh, out of Washington ahead of the news into Southern Maryland. He stops at the Surratt boarding house. Uh, I'm sorry, the Surratt tavern in Clinton, Maryland, pick up weapons. He goes to Dr. Muzz to get his legs set. Um, he goes to another home in Charles County where he is briefly allowed inside. And then he spends about four and a half days in a pine thicket in, in Maryland. So most of his, his escape route is in Maryland. After four and a half days, he, he's been assisted by a gentleman who was part of the Confederate uh, mail line. He puts him on a boat and he shoves him off and directs him to Virginia. Booth and Harold kind of mess up the first time. They don't land in Virginia. They land back in Maryland spend 48 hours there before finally making it across the Potomac to Virginia. And then um, after just a couple days, they make their way. They go through King George County into Caroline County. They cross the Rappahannock River. And then so they on uh, on April 25th, they are at near um, what is now Port Royal, Virginia. So it's in uh, Caroline County, Virginia, and they are in a um, uh, at a farmer's house named Richard Garrett. And so he is a he's, he's a farmer. He's got a big family, about 12 kids. Two of the oldest sons have just returned from Confederate service. And Booth, by this point, has realized that not everyone is willing to help him. As the escape has gone on, he is just being passed along like a hot potato because he, of course, is dangerous to anyone who is willing to help him, even if they agree with his what he has done. And a lot of people, as he's going on, are becoming less and less helpful. Many people saw the death of Lincoln, especially in the aftermath, as one of the greatest tragedies to the South. And the people who lived so close to the Union in the northern Nexon of Virginia, which is the area he was going through, they saw what he had done as huge folly. And so by the time Booth actually shows up at the Garrett farm, he realizes that if he's going to get assistance, he's going to need to give a fake name. And so to the Garrett family, he is a wounded Confederate soldier from Maryland whose name is John William Boyd. And the reason he gives such a terrible alias is because as a young kid, John Wilkes Booth actually initialed his, uh, he actually tattooed his own initials on his hand. So in the webbing between Booth's thumb and forefinger, there was a little JWB. And so he kind of had to stick with an alias that used his initials. So I'm sorry, he was James William Boyd to the Garretts. So he's there at the Garrett farm. They have no reason to suspect him. They know about Lincoln's assassination, but they don't know all the facts. They live out in the country. They don't know. They know Booth as an actor, but they don't know what he looks like or anything like that. And so he's kind of safe there. He spends a first night in the Garrett house with the with the family, no suspicions at all. And then the next day, 
the 16th New York Cavalry, which was headed up by Mary's, one of Mary's favorite Canadians, uh, yeah. Captain Edward Doherty, who was born in Canada. He was uh, um, the captain of the 16th New York. They are on a false lead about John Wilkes Booth, and that's what sent them into Virginia. But as they were looking around, they actually managed to catch, uh, uh, they were like 24 hours behind Booth, and at the the Rappahannock River, they learned that a man with a broken leg had been seen there just 24 hours earlier. And so they are on their way to Bowling Green, which is south of where Booth is, because they are looking for one of the Confederate soldiers who actually dropped Booth off. And so the soldiers all ride right past the farm where Booth is, not knowing that he's there on their way to the next town further south. And when that happens, Booth goes and hides into the woods. Harold, his accomplice, is there too. And this starts setting off red flags to the Garretts. They don't understand why, even though he's a wounded Confederate soldier, so are two of the Garrett sons. And they're like, the war is over. Why are you hiding from the Union? And Booth ends up how they were in a firefight and they stole some horses and it's just better for them to be hidden and kept out of sight. Um, and so when it comes time for bed on, uh, on April 25th, uh, the oldest Garrett son kind of tells Booth, you can't sleep in our house tonight. I don't know what's going on here, but you've been acting suspicious ever since the troopers went by. And I, I want to get rid of you, but it's too late now. Tomorrow, I will take you where you want to go. And at that point, Booth said he wanted to go down to Orange County, um, Orange County Courthouse, and eventually to Mexico. Um, so he, at that point, had realized he was not going to be welcomed in with open arms, even in the South, and he needed to get out of the country. And so that night, Booth and Harold are sent to a tobacco barn to sleep where they are actually locked in by the Garrett's because they are afraid that Booth and Harold are going to steal their horses in the middle of the night um, because they kind of had admitted to being horse thieves or attempted horse thieves against these Union soldiers. By that point, the 16th New York, headed by Captain Doherty, had reached Bowling Green, found the man they're looking for, and then were heading back to the Garrett farm because now they knew that Booth was there. And so they get The man with the broken leg is they never say john wilkes booth they always say where is the lame man where's the man with the broken leg and mr garrett is confused he's sick one of his sons comes forward and says we locked them in the barn because we didn't know what they were doing and so the soldiers go and surround the barn and so there's a long parlay at this point with uh, captain doherty and two of the detectives who were there everton conger and luther baker and they're all trying to convince booth to come out um, but he, of course, doesn't want to surrender. And so they announced to Booth that if you don't come out, we're going to set fire to the barn. Um, but it's going to take a while because they have to dismount their horses and move them a safe distance away because the horses aren't going to deal well with the fire. And so the, in a lot of books and uh, movies about the assassination, the death of Booth happens super quick. It's like, oh, he's, they surround the barn, light it on fire, shoot him. But it takes hours to do all this because they really want to take him alive. They don't have orders just to take him alive, but that is the preferred method because they want to put him on trial. Um, eventually, they have preparations ready to set the barn on fire, and that is when Harold finally gives up. He has escaped with Booth for 12 days. He's been a very loyal companion. You know, Booth with a broken leg was pretty much helpless. If Harold hadn't gone with him and helped him, he could have ditched Booth and escaped himself, but instead he stuck with him. Could you Harold talk a surrenders. little bit about Harold's role, just in case some of our oh, listeners absolutely. don't know? Oh, absolutely. Um, David Harold was uh, born in D.C. He was a pharmacist clerk. He met Booth in like 1863, and um, he actually met him when Booth was performing at Fort's Theater 
Um, and he went backstage at the performance and was like, wow, Mr. Booth, you did a wonderful job. I'm just, it, your, your talent is amazing. And Booth kind of befriended him and realized that this young, this young man kind of really respected him and was very mildly, uh, Bible in his in his hands that Harold was kind of easily led and Booth I think realized that if I keep an, a friendship with this kid I might be able to use him later on and so on the during the kidnapping plot Harold was supposed to help kind of uh, during the escape with Lincoln because Harold went hunting a lot in Southern Maryland and he knew the territory pretty well so he was going to act as a guide when it came night of the assassination Harold kind of kept this job as a guide and purportedly helped Lewis Powell go to Seward's home. And then after Lewis Powell went inside Seward's home and started wreaking havoc, Harold then backtracked. He went to the Kirkwood house to check on George. By that point, George had already left and George had also locked his hotel room, which prevented Harold from getting some more supplies and weapons that had been hidden in the hotel room at the Kirkwood house. At that point, Harold leaves and he escapes out of Washington and catches up with Booth um, right before they get to the Surratt Tavern. So from that point onward, Booth and Harold are together all of the time, except for a brief period of time. And they are just stuck together during most of the escape route. And so he, seeing the writing on the wall that the time has come, surrenders himself and they do light the barn on fire. Booth maintain he retains all of the weapons that they had. So the shooting iron, the, the rifle that they picked up at Surratt House, he has that. And he also has a brace of pistols. And so the barn is on fire. He's got a broken leg. He throws down his crutch. He has already announced to the soldiers that he wants to come out shooting. He's going to, he's going to, what we call now, commit suicide by cop. He's going to make them kill him. Um, uh, kill him. And so he starts jumping or hopping toward the door of the barn, which has been unlocked at that point. And through the slats of the barn, one of the soldiers from the 16th New York, an eccentric man named Boston Corbett, decides to take matters under his own hand. He didn't want any of his fellow soldiers to be shot. He will later say that Providence directed his hand, that God told him to do it. And he aims his pistol through the slats in the barn and he fires. The bullet hits Booth, uh, the back of the neck, um, and he collapses paralyzed. The soldiers rush in, pull out, pull him out. The barn is aflame. The barn burns down. The Garrets lose their barn. He's dragged onto the Garrett porch. And it's only while he's lying there dying that the soldiers finally tell the Garrets who he really is. And the way they do it is very unique that Boston Corbett shows a picture of Booth because all the detectives and all the soldiers who were looking for him had pictures of Booth with them to help identify him. And they, he asked the Garrett's, is this the man we shot in your barn? And the Garrett's say, yes, it is. Of course it is. Why have you killed him? Why have you destroyed our property? And they say, this man is John Wilkes Booth, the slayer, President Lincoln. And Booth will die on the porch of the Garrett house. He kind of is in and out of consciousness. He's um, very hard for him to speak. He's paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and his last words um, are allegedly useless, useless. And then he dies around sunrise on April 26, which pretty close to, I like to say, close to 7.22 a.m., because I think that just fits if it's around the same timeline. So that is the demise of John Wilkes Booth. So it's a, how lucky was that shot? So, I mean, it, like, the way it sounds is like he basically shot into a shot into a barn and actually hit him in the back of the head, like. Well, he, the, by that point, because the barn was on fire, this was the first time the, the soldiers actually saw Booth. 
prior to that, all they had were lanterns on the outside of the barn because it is it is the middle of the night. And so Booth was bragging about how I could pick off any one of you. You're all holding lanterns. I can see you through the slats too. Um, and so once they lit the barn on fire and the interior of the barn caught, they could finally see Booth for the first time. And actually Corbett did not, he was aiming at Booth's center mass okay. and hit him in the neck instead. So, so, so Corbett wasn't the, a very good shot. So the slats in the barn were like, not not like a, a the barn wasn't a very great shelter. I'm like I'm picturing barns like now where oh it was a tobacco barn. So for tobacco barns, when you harvest tobacco, you want to air dry them to dry them out. And so the slats on a tobacco barn are evenly spaced with holes between them so that the airflow can move in and dry the tobacco. So this was specifically not just any old barn, but a tobacco barn. So yeah, the the slats gave you enough space to see into and out of, but not enough room to escape from. So. Corbett had a good view of him before he fired. Oh, okay. Uh, that's that's got to be a misconception, or hopefully it's one that more people than just I had, because I always was kind of picturing, like, a, a poorly constructed, like, hay barn, or, like, I don't know, whatever a normal barn is, that, like, wow, somehow he got a bullet between two boards and, you know, hit right. hit his target, but it's it's obviously much less impressive than that, so. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, that's kind of... Um, you know, it, it denied uh, him the opportunity for a trial or at least to kind of get uh, a little bit more out but of it. I, Booth did not want a trial. I mean, he really, even in his diary, which we mentioned last week and I forgot to continue with, um, he only wrote in this while he was hiding out in the woods um, in Maryland because that letter he had given to his friend John Matthews the day of the assassination, he said, here, give this to the newspapers. It was destroyed and never published. So Booth is not reading his manifesto, and that is why he has to take out this pocket diary that he has and just start scribbling in it in order to get his thoughts down for, for posterity's sake. And in this, he does say things like, I have too great a soul to die like a criminal. Um, God, like, prevent that fate. All these things that are very much speaking to how he doesn't want to be put on trial and just executed like a common criminal, that if he is going to die, he is going to go out literally in a blaze of glory so, so another thing that I and, I and you spoke to it which i think is uh i i i kind of i don't know if i say enjoys the right word but i like about the story is that he had this idea that he was going to go to the south and be welcomed as a hero and you know the this idea that i've kind of got from books i've read about it um that it was kind of in his escape. He's like, we just have to get to Virginia. We just have to get to Virginia. Yep. And once, you know, and then they screwed up the crossing and like, you can just like, you get the sense of desperation, like all, you know, that that's going to be, you know, it's kind of like, the feel- right. It's kind of like yeah. that feeling of like a refugee or something. Like all we've got to do is, you know, get North of the border in this case, South of the border. Uh, and then he gets there and they're like, and they don't want anything to do with him, <laughs> and they actually don't like what he did. Like I just think the 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 poetic justice in that is so rich, um, and that he realizes, based on those diary, diary entries, like I'm gonna die. <laughs> like I know there was the plan. Like he, I'm sure he knew that there was no way he's gonna make it to Mexico. Yeah, and it it destroyed his whatever like glory he thought he was gonna get when he shot the president, and he stopped at the the um, Surratt Tavern. Just a, a couple hours later, he bragged to John M. Lloyd. He said, I'm pretty sure we've assassinated the president and Secretary Seward. And he was eager to tell people about it. When he's in Virginia, right before he's dropped off at the Garrett's, and a Confederate soldier is asking him questions and wants to know all about how it worked and even asked Booth for his autograph, 
um, Booth says it's nothing to brag about. He's, his spirit is broken. The escape route, being passed along, being ignored, finding that people aren't responding, especially that the South, he really, I think, had this idea that the South would rise from the ashes mm -hmm. as if the, like Joe Johnston's army would, would suddenly change everything or I don't know what he really thought would happen, that all the Southerners would pick up their guns and start fighting again. And when he saw that wasn't happening, it really just destroyed he just was like, I, I need to just get out of the country now. Who knows? I think it really kind of also showed why he definitely had a death wish in the end because nothing played out the way he thought it would. Well, Which, wasn't he? When he was in the pine thicket, didn't he get newspapers delivered to him and he was exactly. reading it? And mm. I watched one documentary where it said he's hearing the worst, like he's reading the worst reviews, worst reviews of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happened is that he is in the pine thing. He's reading the newspapers. Everyone is calling him, of course, the, the you know, the, the worst criminal in American history. And they're calling him crazy, which isn't necessarily true, but all these things. And he's seeing that no one is taking the assassination the way in his mind, in the Shakespearean heroic way, you know. And so it, it just it decimates him. And especially when he gets the same reaction in Virginia, uh, he just doesn't know what to do himself anymore. Well, I was just kind of thinking, you know, how you talked about he really wanted to, you know, to be remembered in, right. in a grand scale. You as know, a hero. Yeah, it, it's kind of ironic that he's remembered probably as one of the greatest American villains, in a sense, right? Um, in American history. Um, so just the irony in it is just so fascinating. Yeah, it. he's remembered, but he, is, he has infamy instead of fame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's go ahead and get to some listener-submitted questions. Uh, and I apologize for those of you who submitted some great questions that we waited until this far into our assassination coverage to get to them. But here they are, or some of them at least, as many as we can get to, which I think we should be able to get to all of them. Uh, great friend of the show, Helen, uh, wanted some more. And we've covered this a little bit, but um, I do want to make sure that we mentioned it on the air, that she wanted to know more about the attacks on Seward and Johnson. So is there anything about those attacks maybe that jump out to you that, or maybe some interesting facts about them that we weren't able to get to uh, in our earlier discussions of the conspiracy involving Seward and Johnson? Yeah, I realized we did kind of skip over Seward a little bit. Or Seward, Nick, it's a new episode. <laughs> yeah, I can yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I know Helen's been reading all about him because I'm following her on Twitter, mm -hmm. and she's that, she, uh, yeah. that's her new <laughs> She's yeah, cheating on Lincoln. Sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, this is for you. Um, and yeah, so Lewis Powell is the one who was tasked with assassinating Secretary of State Seward, uh, who was an easy target. And so on the night of the assassination, Lewis Powell rides up allegedly with David Harold. And I, I say that and because I find the more you actually, like anything else, I'm sure you guys see this when you study Lincoln, the more you think you know, like the basic facts, and the more you look into it, the less you actually do know for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, and that in the assassination, the story itself that is retold is always, you know, everyone knows it, and yet so much of it is probably not true, or we don't actually know that for sure. And so this idea that Lewis Powell was guided to Seward's house with by David Harold, and that David Harold left when there were screams of murder, we don't know, but we do know Lewis Powell went to the Seward home. He had actually checked up on Seward the day, the morning, the morning of the fourteenth. Just to, he just went there. He's like, oh, how's the secretary doing from his carriage accident? 
And so the night of the 14th, he goes there and he is disguised as a, um, a, a pharmacist clerk or as a medicine delivery man in order to deliver medicine for the uh, wounded secretary of state. So he knocks on the door. The door is opened by uh, Seward's servant, William Bell. And uh, Lewis Powell says, I'm here to deliver medicine for the secretary. And William Bell says, okay, give it to me and I'll give it to the secretary of state. And Lewis Powell says, no, I have to give it to him myself. Now, this is, of course, is like 10, 10, 15 p.m. And so it's a little late to be making a house call. And so Bell once again insists, no, please give it to me and I'll give it to him. And, and Powell refuses. And he says, no, I have to give it to him myself. And he essentially pushes his way past Bell into the secretary's home and begins going up uh, the stairs. Um, Seward's home was a, a I think, three-story building. So he starts going up the stairs and he had kind of figured out uh, what floor Seward's, home, uh, Seward's room was on. And so he starts going up the stairs and Bell kind of shrugs it off, just being like, well, okay, I guess I'll just let him go upstairs and someone else will deal with it. So he follows Powell up. And then when they get to uh, the floor landing, Frederick Seward, who is William Seward's son and the assistant secretary of state, stops Powell and again asks, who are you? Why are you here? Seward once again says, I have medicine for the secretary and I need to give it to him. And Frederick says, no, give it to me. And Powell once again refuses. And, Sir, and Frederick says, well, surely you can give it to me. I am his son. I will take care of it. And if you will not give it to me, you will leave. And so Powell acts as if everyone is being you know, unhelpful, as if no one's listening to him. And he turns and begins to go down the stairs a step or two. And then he quickly turns around and he is holding a revolver, a Whitney revolver in his hand. And he aims it right at Frederick and he pulls the trigger. The gun does not fire. Whether it was jammed, uh, whether it was why it misfired, we do not know. But instead of just pulling the hammer back and firing again, uh, because it had six shots in it or seven shots in it, in his panic, Powell takes the gun and he brings the barrel of the gun down right on Frederick's head. And Frederick collapses to the floor. It said a piece of Frederick Seward's skull pops out of his head. Mm -hmm. And um, he just collapses down. Oh, I forgot to mention, while they were arguing at the top of the stairs, Fanny Seward, the secretary's uh, younger daughter, it was in the room with her father, heard this arguing and popped her head out. And seeing Frederick Seward fighting with this man just verbally says, father is awake now. And she inadvertently gives the position of what room Powell needs to go in. So after he bashes Frederick, he then drops the gun. The gun actually broke over Frederick's head, and he takes out a large knife, which is the only secondary weapon he has with him. He pushes his way into the Secretary of State's bedroom, and he leaps upon Seward lying in his bed, and he begins to start stabbing at Seward. Um, as we said, Seward had been bedridden. He, even on his best days, Seward was kind of a plucked chicken. You know, you see the look on his face. He's a skinny, <laughs> small guy. And uh, after his wounding, he had lost even more weight and he was bedridden. And so Powell is actually having trouble finding Seward's body underneath all of the bedclothes. He's having trouble stabbing the man because the man is pretty frail and pretty small. And so he turns his attention to a more dangerous area, the neck and the face. Um, but Seward had... Um, had a brace put around his neck after the accident. And so many of the knife blows are just parrying off of that brace. And so he's, Powell is not able to get a, a death blow in, but he does stab Seward 
a couple times in the face. He gets one very deep cut on one cheek and then another one uh, on the other side. And it, he does get a superficial wound kind of on his throat. By this time, the army nurse who was in the room watching over Seward, a man named George Robinson, gets over there and he grabs Powell off of the Secretary of State. And Seward uses that instant to roll off of his bed and down between the bed and the wall. So he just rolls himself into this heap on the ground to protect himself. And now George Robinson is fighting with Lewis Powell and Powell is stabbing at him and punching him and they're grappling with each other. Fanny Seward, meanwhile, has been screaming bloody murder. And this has awakened one of Secretary Seward's other sons, Augustus Seward. And Gus comes down the stairs, or he comes into his his father's room, and he is completely confused about what he's seeing. In the darkness, he sees a man, he sees the, the army nurse, George Robinson, grappling with a man. And in Gus Augustus's confusion, he thinks the army nurse has gone crazy and is attacking his father. He thinks that Robinson has picked up Seward and is attacking him. And so Gus goes in and he separates Powell and Robinson. And for that, he gets stabbed by Lewis Powell. This gives Powell the chance to escape Robinson's clutches and Gus's clutches, and he starts running down the stairs. As he's making his way out, he meets up with a State Department messenger who had been sleeping in the house that night, who was running out to give the alarm, and as and Powell overtakes him and stabs him in the back. A very deep stab right near the spinal cord, and that man collapses. His name is Emmerich Hansel. Powell escapes out of the Seward house, gets on his horse and rides off and we lose him for a few days. Um, and he does not show up again until he shows up at the Mary Surratt boarding house a couple days later on uh, the worst time when the soldiers are there to arrest everyone there anyway. So in the end, five people are brutally stabbed by oh, stabbed or hit in the head with a gun by um, Lewis Powell. They talked about how the floors and the walls were drenched in blood. Fanny Stewart thought her father was dead. He had to tell her, I'm not dead. Call the police, close the house. Um, and the doctors who came, they just saw blood everywhere. And Stanton actually reports to Seward's house before he goes to the Peterson. He hears about the attack on Seward before he hears about the assassination of Lincoln. And so he goes there first and sees Seward and then it hears the news about Lincoln and then heads over to the Peterson house. But when he goes in there, he says that everyone there was weltering in their own gore. Oh. Um, so it really was a bloodbath. Got away with words, man. Yeah. It was just amazing that they all survived. Every single one of them survived. Seward, of course, would be scarred on his face for the rest of his life. Most of the pictures of Seward after that are taken in profile to avoid the side. But there are some pictures out there where you can see the noticeable droop he would have from then on. Emmerich Hansel, the messenger, it was such an important event in his life that when he died, his gravestone in Congressional Cemetery says, wounded by Louis Payne the night of April 14th, 1865. Wow. Um, going on to another question, uh, Kathleen uh, submitted a question that we talked to a little bit. Uh, we talked about Mary Surratt uh, in last week's episode, but I would like, uh, her question is, how deeply involved was she? And I think we talked about that a little bit. Um but uh, her follow-up question is, did she really deserve the same punishment of the others? In your opinion, should she have been hanged uh, as the other conspirators? Yeah, so the, the, and we talked about the testimony against Mary Surratt, and the big what if is, you know, do, should we put as much trust into the testimony of the people who kind of convicted her? So Lewis Weichmann, who talked about Booth hanging out at the house and all the conspirators being there, 
you know, how reliable is he? He actually was a War Department clerk. And if he really knew about all this stuff, he, you know, he would, he did claim to report some suspicious activity, but nothing to really cause a lot of alarm. And then after the assassination, there was a lot of pressure on him to be the one to testify against Mary Surratt. And so his reliability is here and there. That's why there's the debate. John Lloyd, who talked about Mary saying, have the guns ready. He didn't say that for a week. In fact, after the assassination, when the first detectives came down to the tavern and asked, have you seen Booth and Harold or have you seen Booth? And he had just a few hours earlier, he lied and said, nope, haven't seen anyone. And it wasn't until he spent a week in Washington uh, in prison that he finally said, oh, by the way, Mary Surratt told me have the shooting irons ready. And so is it possible he may have just lied in order to protect himself and his own complicity? Possibly. So we have all these we have pretty damning evidence against Mary, but at the same time, reasons to question myself. I'm not as forgiving about Mary Surratt as others. Uh, my fiance, Kate, who um, actually she reenacts as Mary Surratt from time to time. She has a Mary Surratt dress and does a one woman show about Mary. She is far more sympathetic. And um, my own view is, I, I think, and even Kate agrees that Mary Surratt knew something. So much was happening in her house that it seems very likely she knew about the abduction plot. And if you've seen the movie The Conspirator, they overtly kind of say that by putting in Mary Surratt's words, I did not help to plot the assassination of the president. I helped to abduct him or something like that. I think it's likely she knew about that. And then the assassination, it kind of comes down to whether we want to believe those people who testified against her. And so that's why I can go either way. Um, I will say that the she was, of course, found guilty, and as they all were found guilty, but she was sentenced to death. Um, and there were nine military commissioners who were part of the, the, the jury, the judge and jury, essentially, of that trial. And I believe five of them wrote a clemency plea for her, saying... Warrants the death penalty, but because of her age, we believe she should be uh, instead have life in prison. Um, Andrew Johnson would later claim he never saw that petition, which it caused a huge problem for him later on. Um, and Mary Surratt would go to the gallows on July 7, 1865, the first woman executed by the federal government. And ever since that time, the pendulum of her guilt and innocence just swings back and forth. Um, and so when she, before she was executed, everyone thought she was guilty. Everyone thought she must have known about it, but they didn't think they'd kill her. And then once they did, there were the people who said, how could you execute an innocent woman? And others who said, mm, she probably knew about it. And the scholarship swings back and forth every few years as well. And so there's, there's like two big books about Mary Surratt, one that was written in the 80s, which was about how innocent she was and how she was mistreated and everything she did wrong. And then the more recent book, um, Assassin's Accomplice by Kate Clifford Larson, that's what they turned the conspirator from that book. They turned the movie The Conspirator into uh, Kate um, Clifford Larson started off thinking Mary to more complicity. So that's why, you know, it goes really back and forth. I think, I honestly do think she knew about the assassination, whether she, it warranted the death penalty, what her involvement was. I don't know. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, there's, there's the, then the, the, the follow-up question, like, you know, what, what crimes sh should lead to, to right. execution and what shouldn't. And, um, you know, I think it is noteworthy that her being the first woman executed, um, is certainly noteworthy, um, 
and I would I would hope that uh, at least nowadays, if you know you're not the one that pulls, well, hopefully no one is in my opinion. But if you're not the one to pull the trigger, then how the execution happened. It also is always fascinating to me that it happened in July. You know when the the event happened in April, April. and they di- and they didn't even have they didn't even have booth until late April. You right. know uh, that it was, that that happened so quickly in the trial. The trial you know. began May 9th, and the executions were July seventh. Wow. Different, yep. different day and age. So, uh, at history, Bean uh, was uh, submitted a, um, a very, very similar question. So, hopefully, we answered that as well for those listeners. And thank you for submitting those questions, Kathleen, and at history, Bean, as well. Uh, great friend of the show, John, uh, submitted this question. Uh, talked, uh, could you talk to us about the bodyguard situation? Right? Why did Lincoln not travel with a bodyguard? And especially in light of at least one attempt on his life uh, was the first question. And then there's another question after that. Yeah, I think another big misconception is the idea that John Parker, John Frederick Parker. So he's the one notorious as from everyone knows that he was the bodyguard for Lincoln. He went there. And when Lincoln was shot, he was not there. He was out getting a drink. He was watching the show. Don't really know. The problem with this very well-known story is that it's largely not true. Parker, Parker's role, he was not a Lincoln bodyguard. Parker was paid out of the Interior Department. He was a White House guard. In October and November of 64, the White House was having a problem with vandals cutting off pieces of the, the drapes and ripping up pieces of the carpet and stealing stuff from the White House. And so a call went out to the Metropolitan Police Force um, to say, we need some men to be stationed as guards at the White House to stop people from stealing our crap. And so Parker was one of those guys who was picked to be this. In fact, um, and Mary Lincoln had a hand in this because he was going to be drafted. Parker was a part of the Metropolitan Police Force and was going to be drafted. And he approached Mary Lincoln specifically and said, hey, I don't have the money to pay for a substitute. And I'm going to be drafted. Could you get me put on duty here at the White House? And she did. She wrote out a note and sent it and said, I want John Frederick Parker and another man on duty here at the White House as a guard. And that was his job. So in April of 65, when this is happening, Parker does go to Ford's Theater. But his role is not as a bodyguard for Lincoln. Why he even went is kind of confusing because it really wasn't his job to guard Lincoln. Um, My... My view is actually that Parker wasn't even there for Lincoln at all, but was actually kind of hired by the Ford brothers for their theater. Because most theaters back then would hire a police officer, an off-duty police officer, to just be a guard. Just like we have security guards at theaters and places now. The Ford brothers always had one, whether Lincoln was there or not. Just someone there in case there was an, un, you know, a rowdy theater patron that needed to be ejected. It was nice to have a police officer there. And so we know Parker was there, but there's no evidence that Parker rode with the Lincolns to Ford's Theater. We know that the, you know, the driver was Francis Burke and that Charles Forbes was the footman who opened the carriage and let the Lincoln in, Lincolns in and led them there. And Forbes is the one who was sitting outside the presidential box. So the big hatred against Parker is that even if Parker was the one sitting there, he would have let Booth in, as we established in the last one. Booth is a huge celebrity. No, you know, it wouldn't have mattered who was sitting there. They still would have let him in. Forbes did that. Charles Forbes, Lincoln's footman, had gotten a drink and then was sitting there. Booth walks up and he presents a card to Forbes. We don't know what that card 
was. It could have just been a calling card of Booth's. Um, there is one very interesting theory that the card was actually from Senator John Parker Hale. John Wilkes Booth was secretly engaged to Hale's daughter, Lucy Hale. And um, one of the more recent books about John Wilkes Booth, Fortune's Fool by Terry Alford, puts out the idea that when Booth, that Booth's connection with Lucy Hale gave him access to some of John Parker Hale's things and that he got a card from John Parker Hale and Lucy Hale would apparently tell her family later on that that is what got him into the president's box. But even Booth's fame alone would have done it. So Forbes is the one who lets Lincoln in, I'm sorry, lets Booth into the box and everything else is history. So even if Parker was there, nothing would have stopped Booth because he was a famous actor with a calling card or possibly a card from a senator. Why wouldn't you let him in? Okay, yeah, that's that's great stuff. Uh, I don't marry your Nick. If you wanted to jump in and ask any of the listener questions, I feel like I'm taking taking a lot of them. They're all they're all great. Go ahead, Mary. Okay. Um, how about uh, Scott asked why did some sympathize with the assassins, and he said that he recalled a picture in the Time Life album of the Lincoln assassination that showed people with signs around their necks that read "Assassination Sympathizer." Yeah, I have that book somewhere behind me, so I know exactly the picture you talked about. And um, actually, I, I gave a speech back in, uh, I think, in November, and I'm giving it again in April. Um, that's about reactions to Lincoln's death. Um, while largely, and I would like to say universally, his assassination was condemned, that's not the case everywhere in this country. And not only, I'm not even just saying, oh, but some people in the South were happy. They were Northerners who celebrated Lincoln's death. It wasn't, it was largely a universal time of mourning but lincoln was a very hated man in his day there are there's a, one great book that i've read um, the unpopular mr lincoln which talks about you know all the things that made lincoln unpopular in his day and the things he had to do and you guys touched on this in one of your other episodes about his wartime powers the things that he had to do to win the civil war were very heavy-handed and people saw them in that way but they needed to be done but this idea of Lincoln, especially as the figurehead, and if you are a Confederate sympathizer, that you get a lot of hatred toward him. So while Booth did not get really a lot of sympathy in northern parts of Virginia, if he would have made it further south into the areas that weren't occupied by the Union, that still had open presses that weren't seized by the Union, he would have found people who agreed with him, especially in places like Texas, which was kind of they were free from a lot of stuff. So in the deep parts of Texas, they openly celebrated Lincoln's death. And a lot of other places, individuals would write in their diaries about how happy they were that Lincoln was killed and things like that. Um, and in that picture that he mentions, what's unique about that picture is that it does have all a, a whole bunch of soldiers who are lined up and it says assassin sympathizers placards on their chest. And all of those people are actually Union soldiers. They were Union soldiers who were so tired of the war that they celebrated, they said positive things about Lincoln being dead, and their compatriots then arrested them and put them to work at hard labor and shamed them by putting these signs on them and taking their picture. So it wasn't even just, oh, all the Southern sympathizers were happy about Lincoln's death, but even people who had fought, uh, you know, Northern you know, soldiers who just did not like the, the death toll and blamed Lincoln for it. I think this is a good point to, since we're talking about how people responded to Lincoln's death, um, to mention your blog post 
about the terrible Millard Fillmore. <laughs> of course, and I wrote it specifically for you, Nick. And I appreciate it. And it's a great read for our listeners. If you haven't seen it, you know, go to the Boothy Barn and definitely take a look at it. But why don't you go ahead and summarize it for them uh, right now, if you don't mind. Well, so Millard Fillmore was kind of a pain in the neck to Lincoln, you know. He, he was part of that dreaded know-nothing party, and uh, even though they had both been Whigs in the beginning, as the and he and Fillmore had supported the Union and, and uh, even kind of was commander of a little militia up in Buffalo, New York, he, as the war went on, he started to lose hope in Lincoln, and he spoke out against him, and he actually endorsed Mary's favorite, McClellan, in the election of 1864. So Fillmore went out for McClellan. And so that, of course... <laughs> made him uh, persona non grata with Abraham Lincoln. What a loser. So, I mean, loser, loser written all over Fillmore, everything he does. That's right. And so <laughs> Fillmore got this reputation of being a copperhead, of being a Democrat, and being anti-Lincoln. And so when Lincoln was killed um, uh, and the news went up to Buffalo, uh, Fillmore was living in a pretty affluent part of Buffalo, and all of the houses on his block started draping themselves in mourning, which happened around the nation. So they put up black crepe. They would wear black. They, of course, flew the flag. Um, and so, but Fillmore did not do it fast enough. And so on April 17th, so this is, uh, well, two days after Lincoln's death, three days after the assassination, um, he still had not decorated his house like everyone else's. And so a mob either threw ink or mud at his house in order to blacken it and give it the mourners. And so uh, he say that he didn't know the other houses were draping their homes in black and so, and that he had only gone out in the morning and hadn't seen anything since he came back. So he ends up cleaning his house and, and putting all the mourning stuff on it. And then he will later somewhat, I'm sorry, Nick, but he will kind of make up for it that when the funeral train came through Buffalo he was one of the people there who was part of the funeral cortege and he he saw uh lincoln's body and things like that so he he tried to make up for it and he spoke nice things about lincoln but more about johnson a month later um more so he was saying i think we need to support the new president it's hard to be president when the president before you dies i kind of know what that's like so <laughs> he becomes nicer to johnson than he ever really was to lincoln because he kind of feels for him but i still think he saw it as I suck. You suck. <laughs> I feel bad for us sucking. We That's are just how the I suckers. take why, you know. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Nick. He just knew that the two of them would become the suckers. <laughs> Wow, that's 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 some deep historic analysis there. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> the blog post is a great read, though, and I truly appreciated it. And I, I thought it was excellent, very well researched too. So I did not know anything about that. Great read, listeners. Go read it. Yeah, and that's boothybarn.com is where you're going to find that blog. Um, Mary, do you want to go ahead and ask the next question? Yep. Um, Okay, so the next question um, comes from one of our Facebook people, um, Jeff. And you sort of addressed this already, Dave, but um, what, if any, did the Confederate government have, like, their involvement in the assassination? And some scholars think there was a great deal, and most do not. Yeah, I mean, he's absolutely right. And that's, that shows just there is the whole spectrum of who believes what. And it's because there is there's there's only slight pieces of evidence and we have to you know draw conclusions from them. And so um, m- 
my, and I've said my own opinion is I don't think the Confederacy had a lot to do with it. And for some of the people who do support kind of more Confederate involvement, I find their pieces of evidence not compelling or we have to watch out, you know, as historians, as you know, the, the further away from an event that an account comes, the less reliable it is. And so there are accounts that come like 25 years later, 50 years later, with people saying about, oh, Booth met with this person who was very important and things like that. But the credibility of those people, you know, you have to judge the, the closer you are to an event, the more reliable it is. And even though at the trial of 1865, the government brought people, they wanted to prove the Confederates' involvement. They put Jefferson Davis you know, on trial in abstentia mm -hmm. and all the Confederate um, higher-ups. That trial was as much about the eight people who were actually there on the docket as it was about the Confederacy in general. Stanton greatly believed that this was a Confederate plot that was authorized by the you know, high-ranking officials. And so he tried his hardest to prove it. And in my mind, the fact that he failed and that even in 1865, you know, that trial, they really did not clinch the deal and say, yes, look, it was the Confederacy, kind of proves to me that perhaps it's because they never were, really were behind it in the first place. So my own view is that the Confederates did not have as much involvement, the Confederacy had much involvement with Booth. It was just these small instances where he, I, I tell people on the tour that I see that Booth flirted with the Confederacy. He got a little help here. He got a letter of introduction. He met a guy, part of the underground, but I don't think there was any official support hmm. for his plot. Yeah, and that, it seems yeah. like a, well, I mean, you can't make a claim without evidence, right? I mean, there just doesn't right. seem to be the evidence for it. Um, and I don't want to. I mean, like... you can find evidence. It's just, is that evidence as reliable as things closer to the event and from people who aren't mm -hmm. just telling a story in order to make, you know, add fame to themselves yeah. or just because, and as time goes, and that's the hardest part about the assassination is because everyone wants to insert them into this narrative. Yep. Everyone. And a lot of people are like, oh, why would they lie about that? Because it connects them to a historical event. It connects them to Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And so newspapers, as you go, I mean, as you go on, there's a great book um, just about the assassination. Um, it's called We Saw Lincoln Shot. And it's over a hundred eyewitness accounts over the course of from 1865 until you know 19 1956 when the last or 1950 something when the last person there who was there that night died all these people giving their accounts and as you get further away they become more and more grandiose and crazy one lady in the 19 like 20s talked about how when booth jumped from the box to the stage the bone in his leg stuck out and blood <laughs> splashed oh. everyone in the first row and that a rope was then lassoed and pulled him off stage complete nonsense but she legitimately believed it yeah. because if you you well, keep saying oh, something she, yeah she passed a lie detector over, probably yeah yeah, yeah, and that's she, and she that's a problem. Well, and I mean, and I don't want to extrapolate things uh, from lack of evidence either. But with just what we know about Booth's personality, for him to say what he said and to be as you know have as much hubris as he has, but then to be completely silent about having high level connections, right, with a with this conspiracy involving the Confederacy, and the absurdity of someone who has literally an army of tens of thousands of. Um, people at their disposal that their uh their plot is to find a uh, world famous or at least a nationally famous actor right. you know like <laughs> to, to to carry out this plot is just it's pretty like we have all these crazy. trained you know military men who know all this stuff but let's give it to that guy right and it yeah. would not have been cr crazy 
or I mean, they they could have had a Civil War era um, marksman or sniper, right? You know, or something like that. I mean, Far and easier. I, you know, yeah, that it, it could have been done, and I'm glad it wasn't. But yeah, I can't imagine that somebody was creative enough to be like, no. Ford's theater, like you know, like <laughs> this is how it's gonna happen, and, and we're well, gonna we're gonna equip we're gonna equip them with a derringer, you know, <laughs> like it just seems crazy. Well, and then even the initial kidnapping plot that Booth had, I mean, his very original one when he thought of in the summer of eighteen sixty four wasn't bad. It was Lincoln goes between the soldiers' home and the White House. We can just catch him when he's riding either by himself or overtake his carriage and take him out. That's his plan in summer of 1864, and it's not bad, but it takes him so long to get all these people to help him that by the time he finally has all the people, it's like December of 1864, like January of 1865. Lincoln is not going to the old soldier's home anymore because it's not summertime anymore. And his new plan in March of 65, before the assassination, his new plan with all his conspirators is let's kidnap him from Ford's Theater. He has a big meeting with all of his gang and he lays it out. He said, Lincoln will go to Ford's Theater. One of you guys will turn off the gas lights and plunge the theater in the darkness. Me and Lewis Powell, we will go into the president's box and tie him up because, you know, Lincoln's just going to sit there where a guy just ties him up. And so they're going to tie him up. And then Sam Arnold, another conspirator, you're going to be on the stage and we're going to lower him down to you, hogtied. And then we will take him out the back into a carriage and ride him as fast as we can out of Washington and no one will stop us. It's genius. And even, <laughs> even his own conspirator, one of the guys at the meeting says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard and calls Booth out and says, we will never succeed. You're asking for all of us to get arrested because it was, it was the stupidest thing ever. Sure, and yeah. so the idea that the Confederacy would be like, you know what? That guy might have an idea. Let's try him. Nonsense. The right. guy couldn't even get a good kidnapping plot. Sure. And Lincoln would have whipped her ass. Yeah, no kidding. Exactly. Yeah. That's Jack Armstrong, how that he works out. Hold an axe out. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> the next two questions are very, very similar. One's from Jeff, uh, and another is from Adam, uh, about books you would recommend regarding conspiracy and assassination, um, or about Booth. Uh, Jeff asked about your thoughts on American Brutus, or My Thoughts Be Bloody. Um, and Adam asked about uh, Manhunt, um, and if there's any other books maybe that you would recommend uh, or that you enjoyed, or maybe just some, maybe for various levels of interest or scholarship into these people and events. Absolutely. And I know you guys have read Manhunt, and Manhunt is often where everyone starts. Um, Swanson, he, uh, he's a good writer. I give him that he he writes compelling. It reads like fiction. And so that's why everyone starts with Manhunt. And so that is a good place to start. At the same time, as someone who wants to come at it a little more scholarly, as much as I enjoy Manhunt, um, in my mind, the best book on the assassination is the one that Jeff mentions, which is American Brutus by Michael Kaufman. Um, it's called American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln Conspiracies. Um, Michael Kaufman, is, he, he researched this for 30 years before he wrote it. And um, the, it is just filled with an insane amount of detail about the plot. He was one of the first to kind of take all of these independent pieces and like computerize them and date them. And he started to see connections that people hadn't seen before. Um, and so it's the book is, is, is voluminous. And then even the notes itself is a book in itself, like all of his end notes um, or his footnotes are all just filled with information that it is higher up on the scale so it's not necessarily the easy reading 
But if you really want to get the most information, the most accurate information, um, it's definitely American Brutus. Yeah. And so and this I, is the one I always recommend. Yeah, I've read that. Um, and I, I mean, I thought it read... If I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and if you're, you know, a history, an interest in history, I don't think it's, like, too wonky. Like, you're not going to... No, not at it's all. It's not going to no. be, like, down to the minutia that, that you know, uh, you're not going to care about. I, I think it, it read read pretty pretty well um it was weird it's it it, to me i felt like it was kind of marketed like a booth biography that and that is what that's the problem um is that it seemed like a book a booth biography the name of it american brutus and so a lot of people take it as oh it's a biography about john wilkes booth but really it's not i mean it talks about his life of course but it really is an assassination book and in my mind the best assassination book Right, and if you yeah, if you were to make a timeline of, I mean, he was only alive for twenty six years. Like, it is a biography. They do talk about his family. They do talk about his childhood and his, but he's only twenty six. So I mean, right. <laughs> it didn't take long to get us up to the detail that we're very much interested in. Uh, but I read it. Um, I print off all of the the books that I read, and I I put them on my fridge at work, which is just it's kind of, we call it read by example at the school, so people can That's- see that we read. Um, so I, I, so I, Nick, what do you lie about reading? <laughs> I don't put anything up. <laughs> He's, yeah, he kind of—it's kind of like a building wide. Like we all—we're all gonna do this read by example thing. So that's the kind of thing that Nick would never do. Yeah, so. that's, uh, that's about right. Um, He's too cool for that. Yeah. I put all the movies I watch up <laughs> instead. No, but I hate having that cover on my little mini fridge in my office. But uh, I, I also spent a lot of time reading that thing, so I kind of. You know, it is kind of satisfying to take it off my currently reading and put it on my mini fridge, and it's I filled it up. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But I, I agree. I thought I, I thought American Brutus was was a very very good book, and I and I and I thought Manhunt was good too. Um, and I really really one of the things I really like about uh, Swanson is that he concurrently releases young adult versions and adult versions of his books which just from an educator standpoint i I think it's a great idea i don't know why more people don't do that because i'm sure it's profitable as a writer but it's also just a great idea and i'm really i really like how he did that so i mean and there's there are a lot of other i mean my shelf behind me that you guys can see and i know listeners can't that is just these are all assassination books different some some shelves are more associated with other things you'll see lincoln's face but it's all it is and i have more over there and so there are as you know there are just an infinite amount of books on lincoln but even in the assassination there are of course more older ones but um terry alford is the one who's one of the first like professional historians who actually wrote a biography on john wilkes booth and that's fortune's fool which just came out uh a couple years ago so this is reading that one right now very nice yeah nice so this is great and then one of my other favorite books even though it's more for people like me who are more interested for using it for research is uh the book uh john wilkes booth day by day by arthur lukes um this is similar to lincoln you know lincoln day by day it does mark where booth i mean it has a part where it actually is like Here's a day and a year and where Booth was and what he was doing. At the same time, there is the narrative part that kind of puts it all together. And so this is great for really, it is more of the minutia, but it is great to see, you know, what was Booth doing? And especially when it comes to the plot, everything is laid out more chronologically. What makes it so much easier for people like me when we're doing research to be like, no, I need to know what ex- when exactly did this happen? And he's got it in here. So those are kind of my top three books are American Brutus, Fortune's Fool, and then John Wilkes Booth day by day. And I got a boatload on the Booth family because they are fascinating in their own right, but I couldn't pick one on that. 
All right. Um, we had a couple more questions. Um, one, uh, Adam also asked about documentary recommendations, so if we can kind of combine those questions. Um, is that Jer? Is that who? Yeah, that's my um, my partner. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's my husband. He uh-huh. um, he actually, for my birthday a couple years ago, bought me the documentary Killing Lincoln. Okay. National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And he uh, wants to know what your thoughts are on that because he really enjoyed it. And here's the thing that I love telling people about Killing Lincoln. It has nothing to do with Bill O'Reilly's book. The yes. documentary is amazing. Yeah. And I know here's the inside story. So O'Reilly came out with his book. He's just selling books and everything like that. He didn't even write it. It was his ghostwriter, everything like that. But he's got the name. And so they decided to make a documentary about it. But when they needed the source material for it, the director of it did not contact Bill O'Reilly, did not contact the ghostwriter. He contacted... <laughs> Arthur Lukes, the author mm. of John Wilkes Booth Day by Day. So the documentary Killing Lincoln is fabulous because it yep. is almost 100% accurate because mm-hmm. he did not use Bill O'Reilly's book for it. He used Art Lukes's John Wilkes Booth Day by Day to make sure it was accurate. Mm-hmm. I even had some emails with the director when he had some questions about things. So he really did a good job of reaching out to experts in the field and this guy um, to really to make sure they were doing things right. And so it is fabulous. If you can get past the name and the connotation and realize it has nothing to do with Bill O'Reilly's book, it really is one of the best ones out there. Yeah, wow. it's one we've watched. I like Jer will, if there's nothing going on on a Saturday, and he'll be like, do you want to watch Killing Lincoln again? Nice. <laughs> like he'll, he, he loves it. He thought the casting was excellent. Mm-hmm. And he's not a history buff, but it really sparked his interest in the assassination. And every time we watch it, he says, I see something new in it. I see something else I have a question about. Yeah, they did an amazing amount of research for it. So, yeah, that is, um, yeah, I think it it is probably the best documentary. Because you run into, there's a lot of other, like National National Geographic has made uh, John Wilkes Booth one. They all have, all the main ones have. And they're all very good. It It always comes down to the production company and how much they listen to the experts they have on. Cause you always have the talking heads who say the things, but if the production company wants to make it more interesting and wants to cut that stuff, then, you know, you lose, you lose some of the, the accuracy, but killing Lincoln, the documentary highly recommended the book. I don't even own it. Mm-mm. Even <laughs> though I have the shelf behind me, yeah. I do not own that. Yeah. And, and I've heard, I've heard nothing but bad things about the, the book. And I'll be honest, that caused me to, steer away from the documentary but after right. that uh endorsement and i know mary is actually i've planned on watching it too because i know mary uh thinks highly of it um as as does uh your partner so um and yeah i don't i was thrown off by his name there because when i spell jr for myself i don't i don't i only put one e in there so um i guess i didn't know if there was a correct way to spell it or incorrect or different i don't know if that's the correct way to spell it that's just how i always spell does, it yeah, does no. you spell it j-e-r-e yeah, yeah, and his, I would. His real I name is his real name is Jeremy, but I just I always call him Jer. But just I thought for the sake of this episode, I would just put Jer, so we're not yeah. confused. I my family and that's does the, the same thing as me, but I don't. It. Yeah, yeah, I don't put yeah, the, it's the Canadian way. I don't put. I only mine is just J E R. That's because you're I American. Can, I can connect yeah. that to the Lincoln assassination, Mary, because that's right. how crazy I am. Doctor Mudd, he's in prison. His uh, brother-in-law's name was Jeremiah, and he wrote letters to his brother-in-law from prison. And Jer was J E R E. He wrote lots wow. of letters in prison. <laughs> wow. That was impressive. Thank you. Thank you. 
Shit, we should just throw words out there and see if you can tie to the assassination. I mean, I can. I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. All right. And, and our last question uh, was submitted by a friend of the show, Andrea. And I really like this question, so I think it's a good one to kind of end the uh, listener Q&A on. Uh, what was Stanton thinking? She said, what was, Stanton, what was Stanton hoping to find out by having the play acted out again? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So after the assassin, and I forget when it is, I think it was, wasn't until like April tw- uh, 22nd or so that they reenacted Stanton, got the actors who were still in town and they reenacted our American cousin. So this is several days after the assassination. This is still during the investigation time. It's before the trial has started. Some of the conspirators have been arrested, but not all of them. Um, And so Stanton's reasoning for this is because he needed to determine if Booth had any conspirators helping him in the theater. The fact that the crime happened at Ford's theater was important and he needed to know who could be helping him in there. And so they got all the stock actors who were still in town and, but they could not get people like Laura Keene, who was the star of our American cousin, or it was her play and she was the star and her the few others who came with her they got out of dodge right after the assassination they got out of there being like hey we haven't been arrested let's leave while we can and so they had to get other actors to come and play the leads um but otherwise they had the stock company do it and after every scene Stanton would have detectives in there with like tape measures marking where all the set pieces were and the space between the wings and everything like that to see is everything the way it's supposed to be? I don't know if they would have known that, but just to figure out what was the layout throughout the entire night and especially during the big laugh line when the president was shot. And so that must have been very difficult for the actors to do. But they did that because they wanted to know, did, did Booth have help? And actually the guy who was kind of in charge of measuring, he did testify later at the trial, his belief that the carpenters and the stagehands kept the passageway that Booth later escaped out of remarkably clear. And his belief is that a was arrested and put on trial he would be convicted he'd be found guilty they all were found guilty he was only found guilty of aiding and abetting booth's escape and he was given a six-year prison sentence so that whole reenactment of our american cousin was to figure out was there assistance from the stagehands there really wasn't pretty much every historian you find believes that Edmund Spangler was completely innocent. His crime was being friendly with Booth, having held Booth's horse that night, and then in the moments after the assassination, not wanting his friend Booth to get in trouble because he wasn't sure if it was him, he he was alleged to have slapped someone on the face and say, you know, be quiet when someone said, that was John Wilkes Booth. So that is the only crime Spangler ever committed. But they reenacted it and just to see, was there any assistance backstage that helped Booth? Wow, that's I did I didn't really I didn't know that, wow. that about Spangler. Um, his great great grandson was Egon Spangler. Egon, just kidding, <laughs> just the guy nice. from Ghostbusters. <laughs> it's, it's not true. That's that's a fictional character. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to thank uh, our listeners who uh, submitted questions. Uh, those were great questions. Uh, hopefully. Uh, you were happy with the answers that you got from our assassination expert. Uh, please follow us on social media at Real Splitter Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And then the Facebook group um, is always active. There's always, always, always Lincoln stuff going on there. Uh, just uh, do a search in Facebook for 
the rail splitter. Uh, Dave Taylor, thank you so much for two episodes. Um, we talked to your agent, and you're, they were willing to sign on for a second a second episode. We really appreciate that. Uh, before we leave, though, we uh, we want to mention the Rail Splitter Book Club. Uh, we are reading Lincoln, the Man Who Saved America, um, and that episode will be February eighth. So if you want to read the first four chapters of that to join us, you don't have to read them. Obviously, you'll still get a lot out of that episode. We hope. Uh, but if you want to join the Rail Splitter Book Club. Chapters 1 through 4 on February 8th, which brings us to our This Week in Lincoln for this week. Uh, and I will bring it. Normally we have our guests do it, but we had um, our guest this week do it on our last week's episode. Um, I was shopping at my local record shop, uh, and I do say that shopping local is one of the best ways to find cool stuff um, for Lincoln. There's a lot of different stuff in this store. It's called Culture Shock in Rockford on Charles Street. Uh, They have a Lincoln scarf. Uh, They have a secular saint candle for Lincoln. But I found a little spray bottle uh, on display at the store. And I will read for you. It's got a picture. It's got like the rail splitter picture. Lincoln wiping his brow, holding the axe. um, Kind of the the traditional rail splitter um, image. Uh, And this spray bottle says on it, uh, Quickly relieves air of any foulness. Abe Lincoln's log, (laughs) lavatory mist. Uh, featuring natural thyme and eucalyptus scent. So uh, Abraham Lincoln's Log Lavatory Mist in a little old-timey bottle. If you are needing any sort of household materials that use Abe Lincoln for the most absurd um, (laughs) connection, I suppose, to a product. Did you buy it? uh, I I should. I didn't. I bought two records. Um, 60% of the time, it works all the time. That's right. That's right. no, I bought two records. I had to. I bought some cranberries. Pour a little out. It was you know rough rough day for '90s kids. Um, so yeah, but I did not buy the laboratory. Medicine. Take it to this. Take it to school and leave it in the staff bathroom. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> some <laughs> of them need it after I go. Like, <laughs> oh, oh God! Why? I actually. I, it was well, such a. T- it I was met before I went in. Oh. Somebody before me. I did miss say that, but it could work either way. It was such a like lighthearted and just like kind of just like vague reference, and then you just made it real. So anyway, Dave, thank you once again. Uh, we are so 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 hopeful that we can one day meet up in Maryland and and take you up on your offer to show us around. Rolls, rail uh, splitter road trip. Rail splitter yeah, road trip. I'm in. I'm in. Um, so thank you so much for having me on twice. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and we appreciate you listening and contributing. It's been a highlight. Um, we, we hope, we hope to definitely have you on again and, and to chat more and to, to keep the relationship going. So, um, once again, uh, thank you, uh, for thank you. coming on. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, so, uh, that concludes our three parts, little mini series on the assassination. We'll definitely revisit, uh, certain components of it in more detail. Hey, did you want to call this point. an extra- extravaganza? Uh, I had, <laughs> I had, we had a little bit of an outtake. I almost said, welcome back to our part three of our assassination extravaganza. What the hell? And I didn't leave it in the show for re- for a reason. And we re-recorded it, but thank you for bringing it up. Um, I couldn't remember if we left it. I'm sorry. We did not the, leave the it in. The double episodes ha- has me fatigued. Yeah, now it's in. So thank you. And uh, Mary, I know you're a little under the weather. Thank you for being a trooper and staying up. Oh, past- so it is now Thursday. It's the day the show's coming out. Uh, it's past midnight on the East well, Coast. Well, not so. this show. But. Not this one, but anyway. So thank you guys for being troopers uh, and staying up late. Um, and Mary for weathering through your cold. 
For Rail Splitter Nick and Rail Splitter Mary, I am Rail Splitter Jeremy uh, signing off for this week. So please keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you next week. <laughs>